This is Periodically Political, brought to you by Elect STEM. We bring you stories of where science intersects politics. My name is Chris Caputo, and I'll be your co-host today, along with Darren Anderson and Monica Stoller. Our guest today is Dalton McGinty, who served as Premier of Ontario from 2003 to 2013. He led the Ontario Liberal Party to three successive election victories, a feat not achieved in this party in over 100 years. Under Premier McGuinty's leadership, student scores rose by 17%, and Ontario became the first jurisdiction in North America to offer full-day kindergarten. Ontario also closed its coal power plants in the single largest greenhouse gas reduction initiative in the Americas. The McGuinty government also created Ontario's Green Belt, the world's largest protected urban green space and created Canada's first Ministry of Research and Innovation, where he himself served as minister. Since leaving politics, he has been actively engaged in the business uh, community and in philanthropy. He has also served as a fellow at Harvard University's Weatherhead Center for International Affairs and at the University of Toronto School of Public Policy and Governance. He is presently a fellow at Carleton University School of Public Policy and Administration. Thank you so much for your time today and welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Chris. Delight to be here with you and your colleagues, Monica and Darren. So you're a lawyer by training, but in fact, you have a bachelor's degree in biology from McMaster University. Could you walk us through, you know, that path from science into law and then furthermore, how those kind of combine to eventually lead to becoming a politician? Right. Well, there's more... um chance and serendipity here than you might, <laughs> you might otherwise imagine, Chris. Growing up, I had this um, dream of becoming a doctor. And had you asked me at any time throughout high school what I wanted to do, I would have told you that I wanted to become a doctor. And so much so that um, growing up in a big family, uh, where there was a lot of physical labor, we ended up building a lot of things, did a lot of construction. I would often say to my parents, I'd like to help with these. And I would hold up my hands. I'd say, these are the hands of a surgeon. I need to protect them. And uh, as you might imagine, neither of my parents would uh, have much time for that kind of a a response. And they'd say, yeah, well, right now you're my son, and right now we're doing this. Um, And we would get to it. So that had been my passion. I went to uh, uh, university. I enrolled in a program back then called, I think it's it's actually may have come back. It was a a pre-medical BA it was one half arts and one half sciences. I started off at the University of Ottawa. I then transferred to McMaster. I was particularly interested in their medical school program, which is uh, quite distinct uh, in, in Canada. And I completed my BSc. I did not get into um, medical school. So I had a choice. Do another year and apply again. Uh, but frankly, I didn't want to stare into a microscope for another year. So I thought, you know, as a bit of a lark, frankly, I'll apply to law school. So I, I got to law school and I got into law school and, uh, and the rest, as they say, is, uh, is history. But I can tell you that I, I was an unusual breed in, in, in law school. There are mm-hmm. not that many science grads uh, who pursue uh, law, but I found it to be um, uh, a tremendous asset for me in terms of I'd have been introduced, you know, through the scientific method to 
the rigors of observation and um, hypotheses and um, analysis and conclusions, which served me well throughout my life. So could you tell us a bit about why you then eventually jumped into politics? Sure. Um, I guess the simplest reason is because my, my dad was a politician before me. Um, but I should also say that when he was alive, I said there was no way on earth I would ever put my head in that ringer. I thought the hours are long. Um, you have to spend a lot of time away from home. And you're called upon to reconcile the irreconcilable. And it's so much easier to lead our lives uh, in the stands, if you will. The stands are comfortable. They're convenient. And we're anonymous. Why would you ever set foot in the arena? Well, uh, my dad uh, passed away very suddenly. Uh, in fact, almost uh, to the very day, um, back in 1990. He was shoveling snow and uh, uh, had a heart attack. And a couple of weeks after the funeral, I said to um, my wife, I said, I, um, I think I got to run. And she, uh, because she's much smarter than me, said, there's no way you're going to run. We've got four kids under eight. Whoa. And I said, that is very, very sensible. <laughs> but I think I've got to run. And um, I did end up running. And we are, um, as a team, my wife and I, tighter than ever. She's my high school sweetheart. I could never have done any successes I might have built along the way were because she was standing by my side as we um, achieve this. But the point I really want to make is that, let's be honest, if we were to uh, draw up two lists, and one list consisted of all those reasons why we want to stay the hell away from politics, and the other list is why we want to get into politics, that second list would clearly be the shorter list. Mm -hmm. But for me, politics was always more an affair of the heart than the head. And yes, it's got the, um, the uh, usual predictable downsides, but there are some wonderful upsides and privileges associated with public service. Dalton, maybe I can jump in here and just ask, ask, okay, so what do you see as those upsides? Like, you know, you saw how terrible it was. Uh, you saw all those downsides with your father, and yet you did it anyway. So what, what, what got you ready to do that? Well, um, I think that, what, you know, I got, in, I got in mostly out of a sense of obligation. Mm -hmm. Oldest boy in the family, and the same name as my father, my name was already on the damn signs. <laughs> we, we were good to go. So, um, but um, I got in, that's, but it's one thing to get into it, but it's another thing to stay in it for 23 years. Mm -hmm. And I did that because I came throughout the course of my time in public life and with the tremendous um, opportunity I had I had to, to get to know and frankly to better understand uh, people um, I was in, I was inspired by them and um, and it might be that you know um, 
um, people profess a certain cynicism. And I'm not sure that's ever been out of fashion. The ancient Greeks, you know, the founders of democracy, as we know, even talked about that. But my sense of people is that they layer on this cynicism like a thin veneer to protect themselves against life's inevitable disappointments. Mm-hmm. But deep down, there is this primal longing and yearning to um, make a difference, mm-hmm. to do something of enduring value, um, not just for ourselves and our families and our immediate circles, but ideally for other people we will never meet along the way. And um, I came to discover that politics uh, offered that privilege of working together and making a difference. And, and, and don't forget, folks, all those wonderful um, advantages that we enjoy as Canadians, whether it's the education systems that we benefited from or, or the roads that we drive on or the health care that is there for our moms and dads um, as they uh, age and for us and our families whenever we need it, uh, and the quality of life, the, um, the, the rich freedoms that we enjoy. Th- these didn't just spring from the earth. Uh, they were built uh, by people. And um, uh, and I kind of sense that, you know, it, I was the beneficiary of all that, and I had a responsibility to make a contribution. And so that, that was something that helped um, sustain me. I'm also, um, uh, you know, an unabashed, abiding idealist. And I, 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 I can see a better world in my mind's eye. And, uh, and while we will always come up short, I think it was Kant who said, out of the crooked timber of humanity, nothing straight was ever made. You know, we're, 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 we're deeply flawed as human beings, but it's an opportunity for us to make a contribution. There are so many ways that we can make a contribution uh, in life. But I, think, I just think politics and public service is one of the noblest callings funny that you mentioned that. I know um, my wife always used to joke about my beauty pageant speech uh, because I would I would talk about the fact that we're, you know, we're so fortunate because we're, you know, in terms of the time that we were born into and the country that we were born into or were able to come to, we're some of the luckiest human beings that have ever existed. And I've always personally felt that, you know, I, I owe it to to have a positive impact while I'm here in order to ensure that, you know, the next generation and the next generation continue to, to see those benefits. Absolutely. And there, you know, I might ask, you know, there, there, maybe there are two big questions about life. One is what do you want from life? Everybody asks that we've got plans, we've got dreams, we have hopes, longings, yearnings, but there's another question. What does life want from you? And we should pay attention to that question. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things life wants from us is to build on the foundation, which so many others have built for us. And, you know, if you just think for a moment about your own parents and grandparents, I have a feeling you folks don't come from long lines of money. And I have a feeling your moms and dads actually sacrificed for you and that their parents sacrificed for them. Mm-hmm. And we're enjoying the benefits of those labors. 
in a in in a in a society which um, um, is extraordinarily privileged in comparison to so many other parts of the world. So I think we have a responsibility, and I would I would appeal to our listeners to think about answering that second question: What does life want from us? And to consider all that we have been bequeathed. Uh, and to understand that when we make progress here in Canada, a privileged country, that's not just good for Canadians. It helps people around the world understand. Look, they're just, they're the same as us. Their DNA, the same as ours. If they in Canada can build that quality of life, if they can build a caring society, if they can build a strong economy, if they can build a uh, an inclusive uh, society, then so can we. So I just would ask folks to feel a little bit of responsibility in this regard. Dalton, I'm really glad you actually brought up our listeners. Um, Something we didn't introduce at the beginning of this specific podcast is our listeners are likely STEM background people. And the question that I have for you is how do you think it was useful having any sort of STEM training as a politician for you? Um, I really felt like I was in the right place at the right time. I was one of very few people in the legislature with a science background. But if you think of the um, explosion in progress that we are making in areas of research and innovation and how important those are as the foundation for economic growth and enhanced quality of life for all of us, it's, I think it's really important that, you know, for science, for scientists and for science grads to give serious thought to making a contribution alongside so many others. For the longest time, Monica, legislatures were dominated by lawyers, and, but they become much more diverse. But I would argue that there is, a, there is weak representation there from the STEM community. And there, at the, at the very time, that there's a growing gap between um, the evolution and revolution and disruption that's being introduced by scientific findings and, and, and new research and innovation. And who's going to translate that for us? And who's going to help us understand its consequence, both positive and negative? And the other reason, especially right now, that we need um, folks from the STEM community to come in and help us is because you know, there, there's, there's an old saying in politics, which is everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but not their own facts. Well, today there are some people who would argue you are entitled to your own facts. We need some people to come in and remind us, you know what, the earth really is round. We need people to tell us climate change is real and it's caused by us. We need somebody who's been trained and having an affinity for in a commitment to truth and facts. Otherwise, we can get lost. If we're not all standing on that same foundation, how can we build something together? Absolutely. Um, something that I sort of want to touch on is, do you think there's sort of a disconnect between science communication from the scientists getting the information to the politics and how those are interpreted? Absolutely. And I think that what, and, and this is something that I, even though I had, a, my, my dad was an English professor, and I grew up with a real passion for reading, I never really understood how important communication was to the big picture. 
And the problem with we scientists is that we do our work, we labor away in relative anonymity, we come to certain kinds of conclusions, and we say, all right, that's good, that's done. I've, and and you know, there's an expression in law, res ipsa loquitur, which means the thing speaks for itself. <laughs> Why do I need to hit you people over the head with this? <laughs> and I think, you know, um, I recall um, somebody once telling me when I was at the beginning of, of politics, they were telling me that, just when you think you're going to be physically ill if you repeat something is when people are hearing it for the very first time. So we need to find a way to um, communicate. And not just in terms of the facts, Monica, but we need to find a way to make an emotional connection. And there's a story about uh, an American politician, Adlai Stevenson. He's, he won the Democratic nomination for the presidency in the 1950s. Uh, He's up against a very popular president, Eisenhower, so he didn't beat him. And he was actually um, criticized. He was very, he's very, um, very intelligent. uh, uh, And he had uh, a little bit eccentric. And so he's known as a bit of an egghead. In fact, he was called egghead. And, but one day he was stopped on the street by um, a voter who said, uh, Mr. Stevenson, you're going to have every thinking American's vote. And Stevenson didn't miss a beat in saying, that won't be enough. I need a majority. (laughs) And what he meant was, if he couldn't make an emotional connection with people, he couldn't get the support that he needed. So we we tend to uh, see things um, in more black and white, uh, right or wrong, true or false um, from a science background. But the fact is that life is more varying shades of gray. And we need to find a way to make uh, an emotional connection. I'll give you one little, another example. Al Gore uh, became a, a champion uh, on, the, on the issue of climate change. And, and, and he would often begin his remarks by talking about um, um greenhouse gases um, and the various emitters and uh, the tons of CO2 that were being um, absorbed by uh, the atmosphere and the greenhouse effect. And then he had some training and then he would start his talks by showing a picture of the planet. And he started by saying, this is the only home we have. And you notice the difference? Mm -hmm. Home in and of itself is a powerful emotional word there's a big difference between a house and my home. Mm-hmm. So we need to find a way as, as w- if we are in possession of good facts, that's just the half of it. The other half is communicating in those, those facts in a way that, that resonate with people. Absolutely. I think that's a great point. And I just want to add that I've personally, when I've done science outreach, I've approached it in a different way and tried to portray my own personal excitement. And so I do a lot of science outreach to kids. So I've noticed when I'm truly passionate about something and excited about it, they just automatically are attracted to it and they just click to it and they, they're also excited by it and it really engages them. So I do think as scientists, we need to engage both politicians and the public more. I think so. I think the thing that I would add uh, to that is that um, 
It doesn't matter who you are when you go into politics, and it doesn't matter what background you might have, what life experiences you, you, you might bring to the table. You need to see yourself as a work in progress. Um, I'm a big fan of Benjamin Franklin, who said, when you're finished changing, you're finished. You've got to see yourself as a perpetual student. You always bring a certain amount of humility to your undertaking so that you're open to discovering your own weaknesses and taking steps to grow stronger. I guess one of the things that I'm going to speak for you a little bit here is that you learned one of your proudest accomplishments was setting up the Ministry of Research and Innovation. Yeah, absolutely. I can tell you that uh, I was thinking about this and there is no way, if I did not have a science background, I would not have created the Ministry of Research and Innovation, Hmm. the first of its kind in Canada. But I understood how important it was to lend formal recognition and priority to the role of research and innovation in building a stronger economy uh, and in, in, in enhancing our quality of life. So I thought we should set up a separate ministry with uh, separate uh, funding, with separate leadership. And from that, it, it created a number of, of other um, programs uh, and structures that helped institutionalize uh, the idea of research and innovation as being vitally important to all of us. So I did this. I did this early on. Um, um, I think I was might have been two years into my mandate. I can't recall, and uh, I was very proud of that. And I also uh, sat around the cabinet table and I I named myself the minister, and nobody <laughs> objected. Uh, so I thought, why not? But I the reason I did that was very deliberate because I wanted to ensure through the symbolism of the premier him or herself taking on that role to lend it some additional stature. This is not a, this is not, you know, some um, passing fancy, but it's a permanent priority. Well, and you, and you, you created it as the Ministry of Research and Innovation. And I assume tying those two together in the description of the ministry was a very, um, conscious choice. I'd imagine it's related a little bit to what Monica was talking about around communication and and trying to make sure that it's not just you know science being conducted in an ivory tower, but that it's being shown to have an impact on society and, and that type of thing. Is that accurate? Absolutely. That's why we married up the two. It's it's the, the truth of the matter is it's just hard to um, sell <laughs> pure research. Mm-hmm. But we have an understanding, our listeners have an understanding. If we don't have the resources and the public commitment to continue to invest in research, we'll never get to those innovations. Mm-hmm. So the innovations were like an opportunity for me to say, here's here's a, here's a here's an end product, here's a result. Um, but by the way, you know why you know how this came about? This came about because we invested upfront mm-hmm. here. And some of that takes time, and some of that can be frustrating, and sometimes it doesn't lead us in the direction that we originally thought it might. But if we don't do this, we don't get the results that we're looking for. Carrying on this topic, uh, you know, many challenges that are facing humanity will have solutions in science. 
And I, I think the pandemic has really begun to mobilize a lot more STEM educated people into kind of the political arena. Um, and, you know, we want to keep building on this momentum. But as you mentioned earlier, you know, the representation still isn't quite there for folks with a STEM background. So, you know, what advice would you give someone who is interested but doesn't know where to get started? Like, how do you make that that jump into the game? Well, first of all, I would strongly encourage the STEM community to give this some serious thought uh, and to... Um, as part of answering that other question, what does life want from me? And then the one of the ways that they can pursue that is they can, um, I think the simplest way is, is to go retail. What do I mean by that? When there's a campaign coming up, whether it's a municipal, provincial, or federal campaign, you can pick your candidate or pick your party. I belonged to a particular party. I was captain of my team, so to speak, and I was very proud of that. But I'm not here today to encourage anybody to choose one, any one team in particular. I would be heartened through, by, because of any commitment to any team or any candidate. So, and, and I think the thing that would be most helpful is to get an opportunity to go from door to door on behalf of a candidate or together with a candidate and to get a, an understanding of, a better understanding of where people are at and, and, and how they're leading their lives and what's truly important to them, what their challenges are uh, and what, what, what their hopes are. And I think, you know, in particular today, if I might digress just a little bit, Chris, you know, there are, broadly speaking, I would argue kind of, two periods of history. During one period, we walk forward resolutely, inspired by hope about what it is that we might together build that is even better. And there are other periods in history when we um, walk much more slowly, looking down in fear uh, at what it is that we might lose. And that's kind of an age of anxiety. And I, I think, broadly speaking, in much of the world, certainly in the Western world, people have been much more anxious of late. And some of the causes of that anxiety, by the way, are kind of science-related. And in particular, automation, artificial intelligence, algorithms, these are, these are forces that I did not invite into my life, you might say. Mm -hmm. But they might be threatening my livelihood. Or they might be threatening my children's livelihood. Mm -hmm. So we need to better understand those and we need to find ways to shape those. So to go back to what you're saying at the outset, I, I think hitch, hitch a ride on a campaign and go door to door and get a sense retail. Because we all, whether we think, we might think we're worldly. But the fact of the matter is we are prisoners of our own modest existence and life experience. Right. And we think we understand other people, and often we don't. And so if you knock on doors and you get a chance to chat with people informally, they're going to tell you what they think. And what you thought might be important, you may come to understand after talk, knocking on 200 doors, is not on their list. 
Right. Yeah. Getting a better understanding of our neighbors' um, priorities and, and what is important really can open our eyes. Along the lines of campaigning, and, and I think a potential barrier that some people may have for entering politics is, you know, there's whether it's real or not, there's a perceived level of toxicity or, or fighting, um, particularly around, you know, a campaign. And, you know, you can see this in social media nowadays, too. It, it's ratcheted up a little bit. Um, so to kind of, could you shine some light on what it's actually like to be a politician? Sure. You're, you're going to, you know, you'll be called upon to take um, positions. You know, if you are, um, if you bring integrity to your responsibilities, you will listen to all sides and you will wrestle with, um, uh, the, the, you know, the pros and the cons of doing something. But ultimately, you're called upon to vote, and you've you've got to just decide. And you know, I used to say to my team that when it comes to making a decision, um, no's are good, yeses are better, maybe's will kill us, <laughs> and, and, and you can't ride the fence forever. At some point, you're going to have to take a position, and every time you take a position. Um, some, some people will be unhappy. I'll give you an example. I brought in legislation to make it harder for young people to become, to, to, to start smoking. Mm-hmm. Science shows us if I, if you haven't started smoking by the age of 21, there's an excellent chance you'll never start smoking. So if I could just keep you away from it, make it harder for you to buy cigarettes, make the cigarette packages less attractive make the location of those cigarettes and convenience stores further removed from you. If I could do all those kinds of things, that would be in your interest um, as a young person and in the interest of healthcare costs, for example. Well, as soon as I did that, I lost the vote of tobacco farmers. Mm. I lost the vote of convenience store owners. Mm-hmm. So you'll have to get used to not being loved by all the people all the time. And, you know, I've always thought that, of course, you've got to be concerned about what people think about you, but you have to be even more concerned about what you think about you. You've got to do what you think is right, not easy, not convenient, and not even popular. From time to time, you've got to do what what you think is right. So um, that's just through the substantive parts of politics, you make decisions. But then there are other people who are going to you know, um, be critical of you just because you're in the arena. I don't even really care what jersey you're wearing, whose team you're on. And you have to kind of grow a thicker skin. And and you'll have to kind of get used to that aspect of it. But um, people will say things, frankly, that are hurtful. And I think... In hindsight, it's very important that you never lose a sensitivity to that. Uh, because every once in a while, somebody might say something in which there's an element of truth, and you may not want to hear it. So it is, you know, it's, it's, it's a contact sport, right? And... Um, but you are, what's, what's, what sustains you? What sustains you is your idealism 
It's, it's the opportunity to make a difference, the opportunity to, to, to help people. You're going to knock on doors and you're going to learn about somebody who had a child with special learning difficulties, who was at home and was not getting the support that they needed. Might have been a, a single mom or something there. And you might be involved with legislation that brings help to that household, to that child and that mom. What is that worth? Well, to me, that's worth a lot. Right. But I, you know, I can recall, you know, <laughs> driving around with my family, and uh, you know, you'd be there'd be a, a newspaper stand, and there'd be a massive cartoon of me disfiguring me on on the front page. Or my kids would hear something at school, um, or you know, you know, I've got a lot of siblings, and they might hear something in the workplace. And these are all, I think. Um, um, predictable um, consequences of you putting, you know, setting foot in, in in the political waters, but but it's it's worth it. It's worth it. I, and the other the last thing I'll say on this score, unless of course you want to pursue it further, is this is Canada, and overwhelmingly, people are polite and respectful. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 true. And I've you know I've been out of politics for a long time and. Um, and I've been on the streets and walking busy places and people recognize me and, um, people will say, um, are you Dalton McGinney? And I'll say, uh, I used to be. (laughs) Why do you want to know? (laughs) And overwhelmingly people are positive. There are some people who are unhappy with something that I might've done, but you've got to, you know, there's an old joke about, you know, if you want a friend in politics, Get a dog. Um, <laughs> but the truth of the matter, that's an exaggeration. The truth of the matter is, um, overwhelmingly, it's, it's, it's a respectful field. And I think the media um, do a disservice in terms of misrepresenting and exaggerating. But that's not only true in politics. You know, the old story about, well, how many stories that we hear today about all the airplanes that successfully landed. Mm-hmm. We don't hear about those stories. We just hear about the mishaps and the misfortunes. And, and the same applies to politics. There's a lot of good people in there on all sides of the aisle actually trying to do good things. I've been blown away so far when we've talked to yourself and, and other people that have been involved in the political arena by how positively they speak about that political environment. Um, it's almost, I have a friend of mine who's a, who's a lawyer that always used to joke that uh, being a lawyer is like the Looney Tunes skit, you know, where you've got the rooster and the dog and they check in and then they go and they fight and then they check out at the end of the day and then yeah, they're, yeah. you know, they're best friends. And, uh, you know, certainly from the interactions I've had so far, it, I, it sounds like um, at least inside of the community, it, even though it is a contact sport from a professional perspective, and and obviously uh, people can disagree on values and policies. It does sound like it's broadly much less negative than it looks from the outside. It is. There's some real negativity there. But one of the things that, you know, you know, um, advice I would offer to aspiring uh, politicians is go in with a determination to stay out of the mud, mm-hmm. to avoid ad hominem argumentation Mm -hmm. to speak to the issues and to find common ground. You know, there's an old, um, I forget which 
some poet talked about how out behind, out beyond the field of right and wrong, there's another place. I will meet you there. <laughs> and, and, and I think the other thing to keep in mind, nobody is all right, whereas somebody else is all wrong. Mm-hmm. And we need to find a way. Everybody knows something. Everybody on this planet knows something that you don't. Mm-hmm. And you need to find ways to connect and build some kind of foundation of understanding. Hmm. That's interesting. Okay, great. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating, and I'm sure our listeners will really appreciate it. Um, I think my last question for you, or our last question, I should say, is, you know, any last parting words that would help get anybody who's curious to, to take that next step? Uh, what, what would be your, uh, your 30 second elevator pitch for, uh, you know, why somebody should, should start exploring politics more seriously? Well, I'm not sure if it's an elevator pitch, but I'll leave you with a couple of thoughts. One is they tell us that on our deathbed, our greatest, our greatest regrets is not for things that we've done. It's for risks we fail to take. It's for things that we didn't choose to do. That's point number one. Point number two, I'll leave you with some lovely lines from an Indian poet by the name of Rabindranath Tagore, who was talking about public service. And he once wrote, I slept and I dreamt that life was joy. I awoke and I saw that life was service. I acted, and behold, service was joy. That's that's excellent. Wow. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dalton. Uh, this was uh, uh, very interesting, and I'm sure our audience is uh, going to really enjoy hearing your thoughts, and hopefully it uh, stimulates a few folks to uh, take that step and, uh, and start, uh, um, start taking that uh, public service. So that's excellent. Thank you. Darren, if I might ask, I might thank you and Chris and Monica for the opportunity, um, but especially want to thank you for your leadership. I think you, you, you've, you've begun a really important conversation, and I hope it's something that uh, grows. No, thank you for those thoughts. It's an honor, and um, we will do our best. Yeah, I'm just going to echo what Chris said. We are going to try our hardest, and especially trying to get that science communication out there on an emotional level. Excellent. Well, thank you all. And for our listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review the podcast anywhere you currently get your podcast. And we will look forward to uh, speaking to you again in two weeks with our next guest. So thank you very much.